Welcome. This is the Technically Podcast. Today we've got a number of stories spanning security and technology news. And with that, let's dive right in. So first up, we've got this news article on Docker crypto jacking. Uh, we see this coming over from Palo Alto Networks. What's your thoughts on this? Like we've we've got these Docker images that apparently people have downloaded and they're mining cryptocurrency. Like why? Like why did people download these? Like doing the research for this, I could not find any reason why anyone would want to download these. I mean, other than the name of the user, which had Azure in it, it's like Azure NQL. There's nothing that to me as a as a DevOps guy, as a developer, that says to me, this is a package that I need to download onto my servers. The file names are like random numbers and underscores. Yeah, it's it doesn't make any sense. It's like going to a random Linux repository and just saying, hey, give me uh give me this random numbered repository that I think it's gonna do what I'm doing. It it had it had to have been repackaged as something and then advertised somewhere. It, that's just what I think. That's the only thing I can come up with at this point. Maybe somebody somebody made like a troubleshooting document or something, but like even in our research we couldn't find that. I guess the moral of the story on this one, if you don't know what a package is meant to do, don't download it. Do more research on it to decide if, you know, if this is really the right package for you. But absolutely. I, at, at the same point, once it takes off and people are recommending or could be recommending it, I couldn't find any other sources on it, but if it's being recommended by other people at this point, and hey, this is what you need to fix whatever you needed, it's just going to spiral out of control at that point. Yeah, and again, everything we can find on this doesn't seem to point to any good reason to download this, but it was downloaded two million times. It's insane. Exactly. I think that this kind of speaks to kind of like the stupidity of just downloading something because somebody might have recommended it or it seems official. Like, know what you're downloading, people. Like, Docker images generally are named after what they're what they're meant to run or what they're meant to do. So try to be a little little judicious before you throw something onto your production servers. Someone got, uh, I think it was $36,000 worth of Monero, if I remember correctly. I mean, as far as click-through rates, that's a pretty decent amount. Two million downloads and you get $36,000. I can see why the crime pays, but, <laughs> but definitely. damn. All right. The moral of the story there, don't download stuff you don't know. All right, next up, we have these uh, so-called blue leaks uh, named after WikiLeaks. Apparently, uh, a security breach into a design company that made software and websites for police departments and fusion centers. What can we expect out of a, a dump like this? I feel there's not a whole lot that these probably hold for the average person, but there's got to be something there. I mean, if from what I read, it contains, uh, you know, account numbers and a few other items, uh, that, which could be pretty bad for depending on what those account numbers are for. Yeah, absolutely. And in our you know current political environment, we're recording this at the end of June. There's obviously some this animosity towards police. So I, I can get why people might uh, do this. However, at the same time, like I think that you have. The people that, that these the information that this is on is typically uh, not the police officers themselves, but it is going to be criminals or criminal cases. And these, from what I understand, these sites are like data sharing sites between different departments. Is it acting as a moral application of hacking? I don't know. Like, I think that's a little bit of a gray area that I personally wouldn't feel comfortable uh, deciding on. But I can at least understand why somebody would do it, even if it's misplaced. 
yeah, maybe. Uh, but also, if you're releasing names of people that may possibly have a case coming up and here in the U.S. where we're based, it's, you know, innocent until proven guilty. You could be releasing someone's name out to the, into the world and that could be bad, especially if they're actually innocent. Yeah, the 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 judgment in the court of public opinion is definitely a problem right, on the on the same side, kind of in that mindset is let's say, for example, there is an investigation going into uh, an organized crime unit. Now, I guarantee you that those folks have searched for you know, their names and whatnot. And now they may actually know that, Hey, the police are looking into them. They should probably change how they're operating. Like I understand from like a social justice, why somebody might try to do this, but I think that the actual impact is not going to do what people expected. Right. I actually doing the research for this. I, I noticed that hackers, I think it was in 2013. They sent spoofed emails as this company to, uh, mm. and the emails contain malware or uh, ransomware. So I'm wondering what the effects were actually, what was felt by that. I'd have, I'd have to dig more into it, but it's a little sparse from 2013. This appears to be, have been going on for a while. Um, they've collected over 10 years of data, 270 gigabytes. This is not something you, you know, oops your way into. And it sounds like you've got a, at least a decent phishing campaign. As far as like who actually knew about this or how we've confirmed this, this was on uh, Krebs on Security. We'll have, Links in the show notes uh, if you'd like to do a little bit of research yourself. But I think the moral of the story here is make sure that you're actually teaching and showing people how to avoid phishing and security. I, I mean, like best practices <laughs> of like malware scanning and, you know, not having, I don't know, like I, I don't know the details on exactly how they got in, but you have to think that at least some best practices would have prevented at least some of this. It, it looks like they they may have leveraged consumer account and maybe escalated pri mm. uh, privileges from there by uploading data, uh, some sort of payload, I'm sure. Okay. Well, yeah, that's, that's definitely harder to, to deal with, but yeah, I can, I can see that as, as still being something we can, we can learn from, I think. Absolutely. All right. Next up, we have the ripple 20 zero days. What's going on here? That's pretty big. Uh, several, you know, CVS, CVSS scores of nine or more, uh, some 10 it's, it's a crazy bad exploit. There's even a video out there, I think, from one of the researchers that actually found the exploit, uh, the zero day. It, he was able to turn off a power supply, which, you know, could be bad for hospitals, especially like if, UPSs and stuff. Right. Yeah. And he, just, he was able just to shut it off. And if someone's on life support, that's using one of these UPSs that are vulnerable to this. That's that's not good. You don't generally think about software killing people. But Yeah. When you're talking about hardware level exploits, I think you can definitely worry about that. Apparently, this is not just affecting like a few things either. This is affecting libraries that are used across dozens of industries. From what I was looking at, there's really not a whole lot of good mitigation around it either. Like you basically have to wait and hope that your your supplier or your vendor releases patched update on some of these some of these things that are old hardware. That they're probably not supporting anymore. I think the the vendor that basically I, I would I would say controls how the IP stack works. Uh, I think they patched a lot of the issues, especially the ones that were the worst. So the the nines, the tens, and I think like the remote exploits. Right. I think those were actually probably patched by now. Now the question becomes: Has everybody updated? Just right. Probably not the case uh, in the in my experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you think about that, like updating the software is one thing and, you know, that actually might be 
relatively easy. But actually getting all of these internet things, you know, connected devices updated. How When was the last time you updated the firmware on your printer? Like, honestly. No one does a that. A year, two year ago. Like, I occasionally, if I get an update on my, on my printer where it's like, hey, I got some software to download, I go, okay, cool. But most people... I don't know, like that, that seems like it would be a very difficult thing to actually ensure compliance. So in the meantime, like what would, what would you suggest people try to do? If you have automatic updates, I probably one of the best ways, mm-hmm. but, but like you said, I don't know how many printers actually have automatic updates like that for their actual firmware. I can't imagine it's many, at least on the enterprise level. Right. Definitely not. In my mind, the best thing you probably can do is good network control practices, you know, firewalls and Make sure that your stuff isn't just open to the internet. But frankly, if you're not already doing that, I guess this could be your wake up call. Yeah, layered security, that, that approach is definitely, it's a very effective way to help mitigate something like this. But it's definitely not the end all be all, especially if you want to prevent someone for, from just walking right through your network and uh, pivoting through, you know, your printer, which it can happen. So it's not an attack vector people typically consider, but as things are more and more internet connected, you, you never can leave something to chance. Right. And especially a lot of companies use, um, if someone were to have their printer compromised, some people actually use service accounts or an account with higher privileges on their printer or scanner to send stuff to shares. There's a lot of security practices that are very bad that can be even worse with something like this. And then they won't uh, change the default printer credentials to actually log into the printer to get that information. Of course. Like that's again, another common sense thing. I I think with this, again, your, your standard security, keep things up to date, multi-layered security. Like you said, that's the best you can do at the moment until you get things updated. Right. All right. Let's go. Let's move on to something a little more happy, joyful, neat. I guess you could say something that is less about uh, violations of security and privacy. Apple has, you know, recently had their WWDC. They've started talking about how they are planning to build their own CPU using the ARM architecture. What's your take on this? Like, why would they do this? What's the advantages? Well, it seems like one, I'm sure, I'm sure profitability is one of the main reasons here. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it may not be the top, but it's definitely one of the main, you know, I'm sure they pay uh, Intel lots and lots of money for those processors. Absolutely. Um, the other thing that we've been hearing of, and this is, again, we'll link this in the show notes, that apparently there's been some complaints around Intel's quality assurance, um, particularly around the Skylake processors that were released not too long ago. Apparently, Apple has been one of the big reporters of issues with Skylake processors. There's a little bit of talk that maybe Apple's getting a little bit tired of that. Yeah, one of the comments I saw was, I mean, if you're reporting the same amount of vulnerabilities as the manufacturer, then something's wrong. I don't know if that's true, but yeah, that would definitely be a problem for me if I was buying something from a vendor and I just kept constantly finding issues. Especially at their scale. That's their sole provider for CPUs currently. Um, I'd love to see AMD Ryzen in Apple one day, but who knows when that'll happen. The other thing is like, this is not necessarily a new thing for Apple. People are a little bit surprised that, oh, they're building their own CPU for their laptops and there's rumors that it'll even be at the end of this year we'll have you know ARM MacBooks, but Apple's been building ARM chips for their mobile and tablet devices for years, probably almost a decade now. Ever since they got away from, I believe it was licensing from Broadcom. So like, I'm sure that they can do this, and I'm interested to see what they what they're able to make of it. I know before the before we started recording, you mentioned how is this going to affect you know if you're running 
different production architectures compared to what mm-hmm. you're writing code on or you know building what it is uh, something before you push it to production i wonder what the what it, what the problems are going to be for that i mean we don't know yet because uh, I, I don't imagine a lot of developers currently work on arm processors i think i think the only uh kind of production you know there's been a couple of open source laptops but i think the only really production consumer device that we've seen that used arms was i think one of the old surface laptops i think they had like windows arm version or s or something like that so like we haven't seen a lot of software development at least in the major like in the in the major frameworks that have been focused on arm so like i think this might actually shift you know not necessarily right away but Apple tends to kind of push the market towards what they want. And so I think that we will actually see as, you know, it might take a couple of years, but as developers get their hands on these, you know, they're writing code already on ARM systems, you know, maybe we'll start to see some ARM development in the server realm as well. Right now, I'm not sure, right? I'm not sure what that will mean. Will that mean that I need to make sure and and do like all of my testing on, say, an Intel or an AMD system before I deploy? to production you know i don't know where we might find bugs in the difference in the instruction sets but we'll see and because of this they're probably not going to get your amd macbook out anytime soon they're probably going to stick with their I own <laughs> but it's worth I know, wishing, just something right? about like you know 32 cores and 64 threads like some kind of massive ryzen processor i would just i would love and they're extremely cheap too so i mean i built my mm-hmm. desktop off of them it's extremely cheap me too Fan of AMD's processors, they have been doing a good job right now. Kind of leading on that whole ARM processor talk, uh, there has been also a new development in the supercomputing world. We actually have a new fastest supercomputer, the uh, Fugaku supercomputer, uh, I believe made by Fujitsu, and it is ARM based off of 48 core ARM CPUs. Like, holy shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> When you're talking about numbers of CPUs in a single piece of silicon, I think the only things that get anywhere near that are uh, the high-end Ryzen and Epic chips from AMD. I'm pretty sure even top-end Intel, I think, tops out around 32. I could be wrong. I'm sure it's expensive. I would love to have that in my living room, though. <laughs> nice supercomputer. <laughs> I'm sure it would sound like a... Uh, <laughs> A jet engine taken off, like our our already our our tiny little rack space computers or our hair dryers. <laughs> now, as far as numbers, we're looking at 415.5 petaflops, which I mean, when you're talking about that many petaflops, I don't think many people can realistically connect that to like what is that in reality. But it's an obscene amount of processing power, uh, over 152,000 chips. I'm looking forward to see what they do with it. I think it's a bit outside my pay grade to really understand what can be done with it, but it's neat. Well, I know supercomputers are like they're used for many things for applications such as determining on how tornadoes are created. I watched a a video on a supercomputer building and modeling a a storm that generates a tornado. It's pretty interesting on how that worked. That is pretty cool. Like I've I've heard of being used in weather, but it's like I guess weather prediction, but that would make that would make a lot of sense. Like ha- seeing how a vortice, you know, forms in the skies, it's a unique physical property, I guess. Right. Um, I know that they will probably use it for things like drugs and other physics, you know, research. But yeah, we'll, we'll have to see what happens. Um, it's not supposed to come online until next year, though, which apparently there are already new supercomputers that are also planning to come online next year that are going to be even faster. So we'll have to see how long it manages to hold on to that crown of being the fastest supercomputer. It seems like every almost every other month there's a new I'm being a little facetious, but every there's always a new faster supercomputer coming up. Absolutely. 
All right. Um, speaking of computers, let's roll into the next one. We've got Amazon's buying a self-driving car company, which, I mean, I guess you'd have to have almost a supercomputer running in order to do that. Why is Amazon getting into self-driving? Like, are they going to plan, I don't know, Amazon drones that drive now? Everyone has their own self-driving car company nowadays. I mean, I do, you do. I mean, <laughs> it's just going that route. So Amazon definitely has to get into that. Apparently $1.2 billion, which mind you, is half of the value that the company was previously valued at. So Amazon got a hell of a deal. Yes, they did. This company is apparently focused on ride sharing, which we've seen with Uber and uh, Lyft also, I believe, doing their own development in ride sharing, autonomous driving. This company, I think, is a little bit different, though. They have apparently designed their own custom vehicle. They're not just doing retrofits. Oh, interesting. Yeah. To me, that gives me a little bit of a Google vibe. And looking at like the few shots I've seen of their car, it looks kind of like the same thing. It's it's a it's a dome with like sensors on it. Now, as far as their sensors, they've got the full spectrum. They've got the lighter sensors. They've got radar. They've got cameras and some so-called like other sensors that they're not really specifying. What's your thoughts on like these different sensor technologies? Like, why would I use all of those versus, say, Tesla just using cameras? I'm not sure if one one has more of an advantage over the others. I mean, with radar, I mean, you can tell where a vehicle is probably a little bit better than a camera. Mm -hmm. But who knows? Like distance ranging and stuff. It would be a little hard to determine. I'm sure they all have their advantages and disadvantages. Yeah, I figure the best thing you've got is redundancy, right? If my... LiDAR is not working. I can kind of back up off of my radar and my my camera. Like the one point I will say on this is that that Elon Musk has been particularly critical of using LiDAR. He says it's too expensive. It's too bulky that humans don't have LiDAR. We manage to drive just fine. I think it's a little bit of a difference between like, you know, what our brains are able to do is pattern matching versus like a computer and a, an AI trained model right now. But we'll have to see because Obviously, I think that that ride sharing is kind of like the way of the future. Like eventually we probably won't even own our own cars. But, you know, if one of these self-driving cars costs $100,000, it's a lot more difficult to just like mass produce them. And I think if as research, as someone researches, say like with solar technology, the more research that is done on it, the cheaper it tends to get. And it may be that LiDAR or one of the other options will become cheaper as more research is done. So I guess, I guess we'll see as technology progresses. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. The one thing I can see is a little bit of a difficult thing to overcome is data, right? Like, I don't know how long, I think this company's been around for six years. I don't know how long they've actually been collecting actual driving data. But the one thing that Tesla, I feel, really has a huge head start on is the like millions of miles that they have driven, even if they're not self-driving, that their cars have been recording. Right, and just gathering data. Yeah, so... We'll have to see, like, ultimately what comes of it. I think that, you know, obviously Bezos is a smart guy. He's running lots of big, expensive companies that are doing neat stuff. But we'll have to see, like, if this actually manages to pay off. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, because it says that they're working towards an autonomous zero emissions vehicle. But it's kind of hard to say. I mean, nothing's going to be completely zero emissions. I mean, that device may not be zero emissions. I'm sure they mean just zero emissions at the vehicle, right? We can get pretty close with alternative fuels and stuff. I think, right, like assuming it's a battery-powered electric vehicle, well, what about charging? Like assuming this is an autonomous vehicle meant to act as a taxi, you could be talking about a thousand miles in a day pretty easily. I don't know of a single vehicle that can pull that off. Like if you made the entire body of the car out of batteries, you're not going to probably get a thousand miles out of a vehicle. 
you have to have a reasonably quick charging. And right now, if you're not a Tesla, I think the closest thing is the, uh, the Chadmo, I think it's called, um, which is generally only seen uh, overseas in like, I think Europe and Japan. Or you just have one set of vehicles out while the other one's charging. That's probably one of the better options. Battery is, it's good, but it's the range isn't that far yet. Yeah. The energy density needs to definitely improve, which hopefully we'll see soon. Right. Over the next few years, uh, there's going to, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of advances, especially with as much research that is going into electric cars. There's got to be some advances coming out. Absolutely. All right. Kind of a light thing to wrap up, if you will. We've got Intel is apparently working with a community college to make an AI degree. What's your thoughts on on an AI degree? It's it's interesting. I guess it'll depend on what kind of classes are there. And if it's a two year degree, if I remember correctly. Yeah. The two year degree is mostly programming and then they throw in like a few semesters of AI. Cool. It's a good start. Uh, It may get people into that, which there's there's going to be a lot of jobs in that in the future. There's so much research going into AI right now. Yeah, I'm I'm a little skeptical. The only reason I say that I'm skeptical, though, is because kind of systems administration and DevOps stuff that I do, they don't really teach in college. Like the best way that I found to teach somebody is like find a general purpose Linux nerd and hope that you're able to teach them how <laughs> to run a bunch of servers instead of just one. So we'll, we'll have to see what comes of it. Uh, a little skeptical. That level of formalized education is really not going to move the needle that much. But like you said, I think it could be a start for some people. Especially for somebody that has zero experience in the technical world, absolutely. It'll get their feet wet there. And then they can say, hey, look, I have a little, at least a little bit of experience. Let me have a, you know, a junior position somewhere. Absolutely. I think that's, that's the key right there. Get your foot in the door. Start learning on the job because that's where you're going to really find your, your passion and your knowledge. Absolutely. So that's all we've got for today. Um, we'll hopefully see you back here on the next episode, which... We're going to see if that's going to be in a week or two, but watch your feed. We'll see you there. Thanks for listening. This podcast is hosted by me, Shep Alderson. And Mike Anderson. And it was edited and produced by Shep Alderson.